So what's work? How would we define the word work? Anybody have a good definition? You think about what work is, what goes through your mind? How about rest? Got a definition for rest? Is it, is it the opposite of work? So we have work or we rest, we're sort of doing one or the other. Kind of seems that way, except um, when you think about play, play actually seems more the opposite of work and a rest and play the same thing? How do those things sort of work together? And why in the world am I asking you these questions about work and rest? I guess you would think, oh, well, I guess it's because it's on the Sabbath and it's Sunday and that's the day of rest. Of course, any of you with kids that you had to get ready this morning know that it's a lot of work to get children ready. Although if you're at like anything like our house, there's actually a lot of play that's interrupting your work of trying to get your kids ready so you can come here so you can rest, right? That's kind of the routine. The problem is, is that once we get here, we slow down a little. The lights don't go down in here anymore because we have windows, but once you've settled and stopped and the music starts, starts up and you close your eyes, our minds start racing over our weeks, the week we had, the week that's coming, we think about things that we got done, things that we didn't get done, things that we need to get done. We think about conversations we had. We think about the time we got flat, caught flat-footed in a meeting and all of the things we wish we would have said because, man, those things would have been really brilliant if I would have said those in the meeting, right? Those are running through your head. Other things on the to-do list, joys, triumphs, disappointments, defeats, right? All of that running through or perhaps... For some of us, if we're really honest, when we actually do calm down, and the reason why we don't like to settle down when we get really quiet and still, what happens inside of us is this kind of gnawing ache right here in the center, like right there in the deepest part of you where you feel the truest where you know the truest, where we allow ourselves to admit things way deep down inside, we might have to admit that we're more than a little bit disappointed. Maybe disappointed with how our life has turned out. Maybe disappointed a little bit with how we've turned out. Maybe we have some dreams that have been delayed or maybe we have some hopes that are unfulfilled. And now here we are with a precious few minutes in our week. We made it here. We have time to just exhale and to let go and breathe. And these are the thoughts that rush through our minds. How far behind we are, how far short we fall, and how far ahead everyone else seems to be. Maybe that's just me. Maybe you guys don't ever think and fight about that. So what is work and what is rest and why does it matter? Well, I can tell you, if you were a first century Hebrew, understanding the definition of work was of vital importance to you. And it was of vital importance because of this verse, set of verses in Exodus 31. Exodus 31 Moses was receiving instructions from the Lord, and the Lord was telling him, for six days work may be done, but on the seventh day there is a Sabbath of complete rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall surely be put to death. Not put outside the camp, 
Not slapped on the hand, not shunned, not publicly humiliated, put to death. So the sons of Israel shall observe the Sabbath to celebrate the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. It's a sign between me and the sons of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, but on the seventh day he ceased from his labor and he was refreshed. Now that verse is actually making reference to this over here in Genesis 2, verse 3. God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it he rested from all of his work which God had created and made. So the Hebrews adopted this habit of resting on the Sabbath from all of their work. So if you were walking around on the Sabbath day with this, without clarity in your mind about what work was, you were in danger of losing your very life. And so as a loving thing to do, and I actually believe it was a loving thing to do, the law got expanded. This went into the written law. There was also an oral law that commented on this or expanded on it. And it landed in a thing called the Mishnah. And the Mishnah is the oral version of the law, not the law that was written down. It's the commentary, the extras, the details that say, hey, we actually don't want you to violate the law, so we're going to build a fence around it so you never get outside of it, so you can know what work is. You can know what this Hebrew word melachat is. And they had 40 minus 1 definitions. If you look in the Mishnah, it's divided into several chapters, and each of those chapters have different what's called tractates, and there's one on the Sabbath. And there is a section of it that defines work, and it gives 39 categories of work. So you never had to doubt. And in fact, it elucidates other things about carrying and moving things and all of the different details. You can see sowing, planting, reaping, all of the things that would have been the daily activities of people in that time period. Now we're going to be looking at three this morning in particular, reaping, threshing, and sorting. And the reason why we're going to look at those is because we are now in Matthew chapter 12. And in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus and his disciples are walking around through the grain fields on the Sabbath. Now they were hungry and you couldn't fast on the Sabbath. That was a no-no. You feasted on the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a day of feasting. We're going to hear about bread that was specially made just for the priests that they ate on that day. And what was happening is the disciples were hungry, so they were picking heads of grain. If you've ever seen wheat, right? The heads of grain off. So they were reaping They were rubbing it in their hands to rub and separate the hull of the outside from the seed on the inside. They were threshing, and then they were blowing away the chaff, sorting, and they were eating. So the Pharisees who were walking around saw this, and they said, Look, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on a Sabbath. Now, one of the things you need to know is there was actually a distance you could walk on the Sabbath. It was called a Sabbath day's walk. Many of the towns were actually located close enough to one another that a Sabbath day's walk connected them. So if you needed to go from one town to the other to see someone, you could actually travel in between those towns. Very specific diagrams and details on all of this. And so the Pharisees were burning precious cubits following Jesus around looking to catch him in something. And what they caught was actually his disciples breaking the law. 
Jesus said back to them, have you not read what David did? I love it when Jesus says, have you not read? Because if you're saying this to a Pharisee, this is someone who literally has the law and the prophets memorized. That is how you become a Pharisee. That is how you become a rabbi. That is the training that you get. You actually have all of these books memorized. So for Jesus to turn and say, have you not read what David did? When he became hungry, he and his companions, how they entered the house of God and they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priests alone. Now, if you're not an Old Testament junkie and you haven't recently read 1 Samuel 21, you're just sort of like, wow, David did what? He went and ate some consecrated, what in the world is all of this stuff? So 1 Samuel 21, David is in the house of Saul His buddy Jonathan has just told him, hey, my dad actually is going to kill you. You should flee. David is fleeing, and he's saying to himself, I'm going to go to the Philistines. I'm going to go to Gath, and I'm going to go to Achish, and I'm going to see if I can be in his house. And on the way there, he's hungry, and he stops at Nob. The priests of Nob, Elimelech is the priest, the high priest there. And David comes in and he says, I'm hungry. And the priest says, I I have bread. We're about to make new bread. This bread sat on a table. It sat on a table always before the Lord. And it was made fresh every week. There was 12 loaves of it. Each loaf of bread had 19 cups of flour. You ever made a loaf of bread with 19 cups of flour? Wade, Wade Five pounds, heavy bread. They would stack it up in two stacks. They were very particular. If you read about this, this is a very particular ritual that went on. They had special ways of keeping all of the loaves from crushing one another, keeping them from spoiling, keeping them. There's also sort of legends that say it stayed warm all week, so when they ate it on the Sabbath, it was warm. They would eat it on the Sabbath together, but it was just for the priests. All of the tribes, the 12 tribes, which the bread represents, would provide the ingredients. The priest would make it, and then they would enjoy it. It was for Aaron and his descendants only. And David came in and ate of this bread. And what Jesus is saying is, I'm one in the lineage of David. Not only am I going to be a king, but I am going to be a high priest the way David was a king and a high priest. And I can partake of this, and my disciples can partake of it with me. Or have you not read the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? The priests did activities. They had things to do in the temple that actually broke the law, but the Lord overlooked this or excused them from it because they needed to perform priestly duties inside of the temple. Jesus goes on to tell them, but I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. Now, Jesus is referring a little bit to himself, but I also believe that Jesus is referring to the disciples because we see later on in the New Testament, Paul writing to the Corinthians and saying, do you not know that you are a temple of God, that the Holy Spirit is actually going to dwell inside of every believer? Peter also says this as well. You are living stones being built up as a spiritual house. And Jesus was looking forward in this time. He understood that not many years later, a generation later in A.D. 70, the Romans were going to get tired of Jerusalem always sort of rising up and rebelling against them, and they were going to destroy that temple. And what Jesus is saying is something greater than the temple is actually here in front of you, and you are missing it. But if you had known what this means, I desire compassion, 
and not a sacrifice, you would not have condemned these innocent men around you. Now, I desire compassion and not sacrifices from Hosea 6. He would have known that they had also read that, but he also knew that they didn't fully understand it. The NIV and some other translations talk about, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. I really like the way the, in, the New Living Translation renders it. I want you to show love, not offer sacrifices. I want you to know me more than I want burnt offerings. And what he's saying to these Pharisees is, you've codified work, which is good. That was actually an action that allowed, put a fence around the law to keep people from breaking it. But what you've stopped doing is you've stopped seeing the people you serve. All you see are actions that break your list of rules that you have. You actually don't see my disciples as people, and you don't see me as the Lord of this day that we're actually celebrating and serving today. You're not seeing me. You're only seeing what is being broken. You're not seeing people. You're seeing actions. And we don't fit into your set of actions, and therefore you don't see us. You only see rule breakers. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. It's amazing they didn't try to stone him right here for that. We've talked about this before. That term, Son of Man, that Jesus referred to him as harkens back to Daniel chapter 7 where the Son of Man, one like the, the morning, uh, shining with glory, comes in and judges everyone. One like the Son of Man comes in. And so Jesus uses this, picks this up over and over again. And he's saying, I'm Lord over this entire system that you're setting up. And you're missing it. And departing from there. So he's leaving the field. He went into their synagogue. So he literally goes into the, uh, the synagogue of the, uh, the Pharisees. All the commentators love the fact that Matthew referred to it as their synagogue. Um, even though the, you know, it's Jesus is, is the one who's going into it. And a man was there whose hand was withered. The Greek literally says his hand was dry. And they questioned Jesus asking, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And the reason they're asking is so that they might accuse him. They're wondering, commentators wonder, and they disagree on this. Did they actually bring the man in there? Was he a plant? Did they say, hey, let's put this man in here. So we, we couldn't get him out in the field. Let's put this man in here in front of Jesus. Let's set him down. Let's see if Jesus, we know he heals everybody. Let's see if he'll heal on the Sabbath. And maybe we can trap him there. And so they ask him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Now, why would they have to ask him if it was lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Because it wasn't in one of their 39 categories of work because they couldn't heal anyone. And they knew that Jesus had the power to do it. And they actually understood that he was about to do it. And so they're asking him, okay, Jesus, Lord of the Sabbath, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And Jesus says to them, what man among you who has a sheep and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath will not take hold of it and lift it out? Again, if you don't know the context of this, it, it, it doesn't make a ton of sense. Well, of course you would do that. What he's saying to them is, I know in your code of laws that you actually make allowance for a person in danger. If a person falls into a pit, you allow for that. It's actually in your tradition, your expansion of the law. I know you allow for that. If a woman is in childbirth and in danger, you allow for uh, medical attention to be given to her. 
You allow for that. But Jesus isn't saying this. Jesus actually is saying, if a man who has only one sheep, which would be a poor man, the least among you, one that you look at and think is not blessed, even him, if his sheep falls into a pit, you will allow him to lift it up and out. And how much more valuable is a man than a sheep? So then it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. So what Jesus is is saying is, I'm going to leave it up to you to define what you see as good. I'm just going to say it's lawful to do good. And what he's doing is he's changing the paradigm here. He's saying, I'm not going to delineate all of the ways to do good. I'm going to leave it to you to do good. And it's going to put pressure on them and their relationships when they liked having something out here that was a list of rules. And the challenge with living according to a list of rules is the use cases of life go on and on and on. I love that we live in a nation of laws, but we will never stop making laws because we live in a nation of laws. Ask any lawyers. Are there less laws today than there were yesterday? The answer is no, there are more. And there will be more tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. And there has to be because there are new cases, new instances, new things come up that we have to create laws for in order to create safety for us. But that is not the kind of relationship that Jesus is looking for with the people who follow him. And that is what he's saying here is you're so much more valuable than a, than a sheep. Of course, it's okay to do good. It's in your heart to know that it's okay to do good for someone. Why can you not see this? And then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and it was restored to normal like the other. What's great about this is that stretching out your hand didn't violate any of the laws. So Jesus actually healed the man and didn't violate any of their own laws on the Sabbath. Stretching out your hand, doing this sort of thing isn't. And it irritates the Pharisees to such a degree that they went out and conspired against him as to the, how they might destroy him. Now, they couldn't literally put him to death because they're occupied by the Romans, and so the commentators disagree on, did they think to kill him then? Were, they, were these Pharisees actually from Jerusalem, or were they going to go to Jerusalem and start to bring charges against him as an insurrectionist somehow, right? It's, this is the drama that we're starting to see play out, the seeds of it being planted here in Galilee that are going to go on in Jerusalem. And Jesus was aware of this, and so he withdrew from there, and many followed him, right? They just saw a hand withered, and so anybody that had a need began to follow Jesus, and he healed all of them, and he warned not to tell who he was. And we see him doing this over and over again, and Matthew tells us why here. He says, he, Jesus warned him in order to fulfill what was said through Isaiah in chapter 42. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. Does that sound like something we heard earlier in Matthew? This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Right as the dove was descending, Jesus comes up out of the water of baptism. The Holy Spirit, he's saying here that my spirit is put upon him. He will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. That is really good news for us. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. Jesus is in a mode now where he is doing this as covertly as it is possible to heal a man's withered hand in a synagogue. 
And he doesn't want them to be proclaiming. In fact, as we've seen right now, it's mostly the demons that know that he's the Messiah right now. They're the only ones that are crying out, you know, son of God, who are you? Right? We're not to the section where Peter is actually the one that says, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah. Everybody's still wondering right now. And so Jesus is keeping them under wraps. And then it goes on in verse 20 and 21 and says some very cryptic things that, that we as 21st century folks don't get. A battered reed he will not break off and a smoldering wick he won't put out until he leads justice to victory and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Now if you see a battered reed, you probably think, right, like a, a, a plant that's growing up and it's been trodden on and it's, the gar- it's not very pretty in the garden. That's what we have reeds for, right? They're water reeds or lilies or... Um, uh, willows, that kind of thing, right? And it's bruised and bent over, and so you just you would go and cut it off because it's not pretty. That's not what a reed was back then. If you had a rod back then, it was a very useful tool, and it was useful for two things. If you had a rod that was a cubit length, you could actually measure things. So measuring rods were used for various building projects. You could also use a rod that was bigger for stacking things on or building. So a reed that was bent... Right? You ever have, you have a broken uh, ruler or measuring stick or one that's bent or you pull out one of those measuring tapes and it always is falling over? That is not useful. Or if it's cracked and can't support any weight, it is not going to be useful. A smoldering wick. So the wicks of back then are not like wicks of today. They're not your little wicks and your Yankee candles. They were long strips of linen that were cut to a certain width. And they were soaked up in the oil and they would burn. And if you did not attend to this wick, it would get too long. And if it got too long, the oil that you were burning, the kerosene that you were burning, would fume out. And it would put, put black, sort of noxious smoke in the entire house. It would pollute. It wouldn't bring light. It would bring pollution. And this is what Jesus is saying, is that he will not break that off and he will not put out until he leads justice to victory. Until that ultimate day when he does come like the Son of Man, he is not about snuffing out and discarding. He is about redemption and about restoration. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. So that brings us back to work and to rest Let's see if we can't tie this together and see a little bit about what Jesus is saying. We started out today by asking what are work and rest and play. Let me give you a definition. Work is an activity with a purpose. If you are doing an activity with a purpose, you are working. Play is an activity that has no purpose. Work and play are actually opposites. One is activity with a purpose. The other is activity with no purpose. Rest is the opposite of both of them. Rest is actually ceasing from activity. And it's ceasing from activity in order to relax, to restore, and to recover. It is doing nothing so that you can relax and restore and recover. Now, we all have a purpose And we all have activities that we are assigned to. Perhaps we feel like we have activities or assignments in life that are based on things that we are wanting to do, based on things that we feel like the Lord has called us to. But our problem is, and we run into a problem when we make the activity the purpose. 
So instead of working to serve our clients or serve our customers or serve the others or working to provide for ourselves and for our family, we expect our work to provide something for us, something extraordinarily profound to provide a sense of purpose, to provide meaning, to provide identity, to provide fulfillment, to provide all of this to us in a way that work was never meant to provide. We operate thinking that once we achieve the next level, all of this will change. Like everything will change. I'll get the next, you know, the next deal's done. I get the next level. I get the next promotion. I get the next. I close this. That happens. It, it, it'll change. It'll settle down. And that, you know, that sort of striving forward, I'll find there's a there there that I'm headed towards. But it doesn't ever change. Instead, what happens is our relentless pursuit of meaning through work turns us into purpose chasing machines. Our relentless pursuit of work turns us into purpose-chasing machines. And in fact, now everything we do has to have a purpose. And if every activity you undertake has to have a purpose, then you never, ever stop working. And this is true for us, and it's true for our children. Our relentless, purpose-driven activity means we don't ever really rest, and we don't ever really play. Even our recreation, our recreation, our recreation has to have a purpose to it, right? We work out in order to achieve fitness goals. We read in order to learn so that we can achieve our goals at work for our career. We put our kids in activities so they can make a traveling team, so they can get scholarships to get into a good college in order to achieve our goals for them. We don't really rest either. We have hobbies that we turn into side hustles that we dream someday will become businesses so we can fulfill life goals. Everything we have has an exit plan and everything has a goal. We're not living. We're pursuing our best life ever. And we even have Christian authors writing books, which millions of us read, telling us how to live a more purpose-driven life, how to become our best selves ever. And I am here to tell you that you have one purpose, and your purpose is to die. That's it. Your purpose is to die. Jesus said, you will take up your cross and follow me. You're called to cease from your striving because our work is not going to give our life purpose. Our value to Him gives us purpose and gives purpose to our work and our play and our rest. You're not called to be a tool in the hands of the Master. You're not called to be a tool in the hands of the Master. You're called to be a friend, a beloved, and a dear one. To the master. He doesn't want your utility. He wants you. Again, he doesn't want your utility. He wants you. Because what Jesus is telling us and what his life is demonstrating and what Matthew is trying to get through to us by telling us these stories is that we are too bent and broken to be truly useful. We're like a bruised reed, too bent to measure, too broken to support much of anything, but Jesus still finds you valuable. Your life has purpose and meaning even when you're too broken to be useful. He loves useless you. He values useless you. 
Useless you is his purpose. But maybe on the other hand, you aren't bent or broken. Maybe you're a wick that needs to be trimmed. Maybe your life lacks discipline. You live to excess in either work or play or both. And you're burning too hard and you're running too fast to take the time to care for your soul and tend the garden that is in your heart. And the fire that burns in you is not producing light. It is producing smoke. Pollution. So much so that it burns the eyes of everyone around you. It causes them to choke and to cough from poison fumes clouding the air around you instead of lighting the way. And what Jesus is telling you is that he will not snuff you out. Even though you're not in any condition to be useful to him, there is a solution. And that solution is to enter into his rest. And this rest of Jesus has nothing to do with setting aside one day of the week to do nothing. Let me say that again. The rest of Jesus has nothing to do with setting aside one day out of the week to do nothing. It has everything to do with the cross. Because the cross transformed both work and rest. Jesus Jesus was the perfect worker. He was only about his father's business. He only did what he saw the father do. He didn't pursue his own dreams. He pursued the father's will. His work was perfectly balanced, and his work served a purpose, not his ego. In fact, his work here on earth ultimately asked him to empty himself, to walk a path he asked to be excused of, and to suffer separation and disgrace and punishment. And it's that work of death, and it's that work of resurrection, and that work of ascension, and that work of sending the Holy Spirit to reside in you that has transformed your work. Work and rest are different before and after the cross. They are fundamentally different. Before the cross, work looked like 40 minus 1 things. There was a list of 39 categories of what work looked like. And you were called to rest on the Sabbath or die. That was literally what rest looked like. Work looked like this. Rest looked like this. The cross transformed that. What did it transform it into? After the cross, what is our work? What is our work here on earth? Our work is to pursue God. Jesus didn't die to give you Sundays off. Jesus died to give you a Holy Spirit and give you a life and lifestyle of rest that can be in pursuit of God so that you can receive any assignment as one of his ambassadors of another kingdom here on earth and receive ultimate fulfillment because you're not looking to your work to provide it. You're understanding that no matter where you are, you're an ambassador of another kingdom. The New Testament tells us over and over again, we are exiles, we are visitors here. Our home is another place. Our values are from another place. The kingdom of another place that is coming here, that is what we are to bring to earth. That is what we are to live. 
And it doesn't matter if you're not in full-time vocational ministry. In fact, it's even more important that you understand this if you're not in full-time vocational ministry. What does it mean to bring the kingdom, for the kingdom to come at your place of work? And it's not just moral modeling and evangelism. Should you be a moral model? Yes. You should be a moral model. Should you maybe talk about your faith to people at work? Yes. But there is way more broken and screwed up at your workplace. I don't even need to know what it is. I just know every workplace is more broken and screwed up than work will look like in the kingdom of God. We are not going to sit on clouds and play harps in that kingdom. If that is your vision of the future, you need to meditate on what it means and what that future kingdom is going to look like. He says the earth is going to be reborn. Why would he make planets and never want us to discover them? That's what I tell my kids all the time. My son's a mechanical engineer. I say, you know what? In the next kingdom, you might get to build spaceships that go the speed of light so we can see the other sides of the galaxy because why else would he make them? If he doesn't want us to explore it. And if that sounds like I'm talking X-Men fantasy, read the book of Revelation. Read the book of Daniel. Read the book of Isaiah. We have another kingdom that is coming. Many of the dreams that live inside your hearts are not for this age. They're for an age that's coming. And what he is doing now is he is preparing you. He is building inside of you an understanding of that kingdom. And what we are doing is we're turning that work of preparation and understanding of what is to come into fulfillment for ourselves, and it is not going to work. It is not going to work. What he is offering you is a rest in your labors in the midst of it. He is freeing you from your work, works. I don't even know that most of us, I don't even know that I am uh, in danger of working to please Jesus. I'm so busy working to impress you and to impress my clients, and so my LinkedIn profile looks great. Right? We've got our identity so woven up in this stuff we do Monday through Saturday, so woven up in that that we're not even remotely in danger of trying to impress Jesus with us, with it. We know he's probably not impressed with most of what we're doing. And what he's calling us to do is bring the kingdom to that place, is to look around and say, what does redemption look like in my profession? Where are the broken things that need to be restored in my profession? Where is there injustice? Go pick a supply chain. There is injustice everywhere in just about every supply chain in America. If you work in supply chain and logistics, if you work in getting product from A to B, I promise you there is injustice at almost every step of the supply chain. Go work to restore that. That is the work that needs to be done. The work of redemption is done. That's the cross. We are living after the work of redemption. We're living in the age of restoration, and that is the work we are called to do. And what is beautiful about this is the work that we do here, we can labor our entire lives and have seemingly nothing to show for it by the world standard and be entered into the kingdom and put over something because what he did is he built in us an understanding and a work ethic that is for the kingdom that is to come. 
And it's important that we not be ignorant about that kingdom because it will force us to live wrongly here and now. So how do we rest? If we're freed from our works, if we're not trying to labor anymore, if there is a Sabbath rest for everyone now, and if our effort is to stay in and maintain in that, as it says in Hebrews 4, you should read that. If we're freed from working in order to impress God, if we really believe that Jesus did that, then how do we operate and live in this rest? He's not giving us a list of check boxes. What Jesus did is he gave us a spirit and he said, I'm moving the check boxes out of the way. I'm telling you it's okay to do good every day. I'm telling you to bring the kingdom here on earth and I'm not telling you everything it looks like And the reason why is because I want to work with you on it. If I just give you a list, you'll run off with the list and you'll never talk to me. He sent us the Holy Spirit because we are his beloved and he wants relationship with us. And it is up to us to understand the rhythms and the seasons of our own life. The rhythms and the seasons of our own lives. I love Romans 1 verse 20. It says that the invisible qualities of God are made evident in creation. And Paul's using it for an apologetic to say that nobody is without excuse. But when I look at that, I say that means I can look at creation and it speaks back theology to me. It speaks back right and perfect theology. And what I see in creation from a rest standpoint is that we breathe in and we breathe out. Our heart beats all the blood out, and then our heart relaxes and lets the blood back in. We sleep every night. There is a rhythm of rest. There is day and there is night. There are seasons. We're moving out of the hot season into a cooler season into a cold season. There is not this perfect balance and equilibrium. That is not the goal that we're going after. It is understanding in conjunction with the Holy Spirit in that relationship, in the relationship with our husbands or our wives or with our children or with our friends or with our bosses or with our coworkers, the season of life that I am in. And if you understand where you are is an assignment from the Lord. And if you're not trying to get your fulfillment from that thing, then you can live through very extended, difficult seasons. In fact, you can live through disappointment and delay in work it is probably the only way you can live through the disappointments and delays because those will squeeze every nasty thing up out of your heart like it was the bottom of a tube of toothpaste. And I'm saying this as much to myself. I am telling you everything the Holy Spirit's been telling me this week. Because I've had dreams crash. I've had big failures. My peers that I got that I was with at Walmart when I got fired, there's C-level folks at Walmart now. I think about that from time to time. And I have to work and wrestle to get to a place of rest in my heart so that I can carry on, so that I'm not laboring to prove myself, to have my comeback, to here's my second, my second half. Look at this, my second act. Look at this. See, I I am okay. I am good. That is my temptation. It's there all the time. 
The Holy Spirit was just needling it all week in me. I know what it feels like, especially if things are doing well, and I know what it feels like, especially when things are not going well. It is hard to get freed from that. But this is the good news of the gospel, and this is fundamentally the way that the cross has transformed what work and rest look like for each of us. Why don't you stand and let me pray for you guys. Jesus, thank you for what you did on the cross. Every time, every time, Lord, I dig into your word, it takes me back to the cross and that extraordinary thing that you did for all of us, God. And it expands it, Lord. It expands it into every area and sphere and aspect of life, and it redeems it. And I thank you that you ascended to sit beside your Father, and you ascended so that you could send the Holy Spirit to live inside of us, so that we could be temples, so that we could be empowered, Lord, so that we could live and, and work in rest. Yes, Lord, we need seasons, we need time off, we need downtime, but Lord, we need a sense of rest even in the midst of our labors, God. Forgive us for making work take central place. Forgive us for linking our identities to work. Forgive us for pursuing work and not tending our heart. Forgive us for pursuing work and works and not pursuing relationship with you primarily with those you put in direct care of us, our family around us, our friend relationships, God, for not caring for our own selves, for our bodies, God. If we don't take care of this body, where are we going to live? Lord, forgive us for always making everything work. And give us, give your people a sense of rest. Lord, even in the midst of difficulty, even in the midst of labor, even in the midst of trial and tribulation, Lord, let us be a people that walk with a sense of your rest. And Lord, as we enter back into worship, I pray, Holy Spirit, you wouldn't leave us the same as you found us here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.